There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate is a great concern. And what do you want that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hey, folks. Welcome back to year two of Climactic. To start off the new year, we've got a first for you in today's show. An interview with folks living in the U.S. Joining us are Helen and Raul Costa de Beauregard, a young couple living in my hometown of Seattle, Washington. We talk about their campaign to add a new Nobel Prize, one dedicated to recognizing and rewarding the amazing work happening to mitigate, avoid, and reverse climate change. Enjoy! So a lot of my listeners might know that I am from Seattle. I'm an American Kiwi, but I, I spent the first 12 years of my life in Seattle and now I'm on the phone with a couple that live in Seattle, and you'll get to hear some of these fine Seattle accents, right? Well, we're, we're French, so that would be kind of a, a really strange Seattle accent. But we'll do our best. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I, I actually, I was asking Helen before if she'd been down to Issaquah, and, and the, you, you tried very hard on the pronunciation of Issaquah. It's a tough one. Yes. That was our, our favorite game when we had people come and visit us from overseas to like, we're going to go to Puyallup and Snohomish and Snoqualmie and Issaquah. And these people were just like, how, what are these places? Yeah. I know. I mean, <laughs> we've been in Seattle for five years and you're right. I have so many strange names here. You've been there in Seattle for five years. What brought you guys over to Seattle? So I work, uh, you know, I used to work for an American company in Paris and then both Helen and I, we had studied in the U.S. for a year, and we wanted to go back to the U.S. for a longer time. And so I applied for a transfer, and then five years ago, we moved to Seattle. We didn't know much about Seattle, but when we researched the city, we quickly found out it was really a, a beautiful place and really nice to live in. So we were really happy to move. Fantastic. So I'm glad you're liking it. I'm really glad you guys are over there. I, I do miss it occasionally. All in all, I'm very happy to be down in Australia with my weird American accent. <laughs> what was the work that brought you over to Seattle? So what do you what do you guys both do? So I was a product manager and I'm still a product manager. The interesting thing is my job has nothing to do with climate change. Mm. But I would say it's really heartening to see that in Seattle, you know, there's really awareness about the issue, including at work. And there are like multiple groups within the company of just employees, right? That working or talking about that issue. And for me, that's been a good thing from moving to Paris to Seattle has been seeing that grassroots. A lot of listeners, especially down here in Australia, would be kind of surprised because the impression we get of where America's at, unfortunately, because of the federal government at the moment and with the Paris Agreement and everything, that America is, is behind and uh, Europe is ahead. But I think, you know, I, I'm aware a bit more of the, the dynamic there in Seattle, but it'd be great to hear from you. What was that difference you found coming from, from Paris, you know, a capital city of progressive European country <laughs> to America? What, what was better about it and, and what kind of surprised you? For sure, the EU and the French government are doing a lot on, on climate change. There's like an entire branch of government who's working on that. And then there's 
a common position about the EU on 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 that for negotiations. And they're trying to do, you know, lead the way in that issue. But at the local level, I think it's a different story. And this is what shocked me when moving to Seattle. I think the Pacific Northwest is such incredible, pristine, beautiful, you know, wild place. And here. Americans and every, you know every folks who live in Seattle and the Pacific Northwest are just in love with nature. Uh, a lot mm-hmm. more people go to hikes and camp and just do outdoor activities in Seattle than they do in Paris. And so I think there's just more awareness about environment at just a very basic level here in in, in Seattle. Seattle does seem to be a real big hotbed of really cool things happening on climate change. One thing I especially love is is the Nori Reversing Climate Change podcast that I've been a fan of for for a year now, ever since hearing about it, and it kind of was a big inspiration to me in starting the show. So I'm happy to see that even people moving there, you know, five years ago, Seattle sort of kept that momentum up and, and is one of the leaders in this space for a city. Helen, how about you? What, what do you do and how have you found the move to Seattle? I was uh, working for the French government. I've been working at the Directorate of Climate Change and Energy. So first oh, wow. I started on um, the climate change uh, side I was working on carbon markets, uh, international mechanism. So I was, uh, involved at, I was involved at, um, UN level. Uh, so working with the UNFCCC, the UN framework for uh, climate change. I was the French lead on carbon market and market mechanisms. That's how I started my career. And then after a couple of years, I moved to the energy side. And I was working on uh, nuclear energy. And wow. after two years, we decided to start uh, new adventures uh, abroad. And that's, that's Raoul's work that brought us to uh, Seattle. So I've tried to work in my field of expertise. The issue being that I would have been like m- much more useful in Olympia, the uh, capital of the uh, state of Washington. Uh, as you know, like, uh, Jay Inslee, our governor, is like very progressive mm. and very big on uh, climate change and trying to push uh, for solutions and including like market mechanism or taxes. If I had to spend like uh, five days of my week in Olympia and come back to Seattle and only see my husband for a weekend and, um, and we wanted to also start a family. So that was uh, not an option uh, for me. Being involved in the startup community in Seattle. Um, organizing startup, startup weekends, uh, including the first startup weekend on green innovation in 2014. That's amazing. I had no idea I was talking to such a, an expert in the field and somebody who'd done so much. That's incredible. <laughs> I, I could talk to you for hours just about all that stuff, Helen. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> that's um, so catchy. <laughs> <laughs> You've got press ganged into this, I think. I mean, I, I was... For the longest time, aware of climate change, you know, I, I have a background in in science, and so it completely makes sense. Mm-hmm. But for sure, you know, Helen. So she changed my behavior, and I changed my behavior because I love her, and then oh. just because I, you know, I now like embrace the cause. <laughs> well done, Helen. <laughs> good conversion there. All right. So I guess to to get into like the the meat of it here, and in how we're talking today. You guys are undertaking a pretty big challenge aimed at a one of the most famous sort of pieces of global collaboration, one of the most famous sort of organizations in the world, one of the longest standing pieces of kind of civil organization in the world as well. And you want to do something to the Nobel Prize. 
Can you guys tell me a bit about what you guys are doing and, and how this came about? Absolutely. So uh, what we have launched in October is a petition uh, to ask the board of the Nobel Foundation to consider to create a new Nobel Prize for actions against uh, climate change. That's the big challenge uh, you were uh, talking <laughs> about. On October 8th, there was the release of the um, IPCC. The report was like really, uh, was I felt like dire. catastrophic. Yeah. Exactly. As I said, like I'm uh, educated in climate change, but that was the report came um, as a very big sh uh, shock to me. So I was like really depressed uh, when I read it. I was like crying and thinking about my kids. And so when Raul and I, uh, we had date nights at home uh, once uh, a week. And so obviously like the topic of our date night was around the report. Um, and we were like uh, talking about it, trying to see what kind of action we could take at our uh, level as a family, how we could uh, uh, change our uh, family climate action roadmap that we have. But, mm. you know, after talking like uh, over an hour, I was just like, I, I need to uh, change topic. It's just like uh, too much. It's really like taking a toll on me. Absolutely. And so I asked uh, Raul like very casually about the um, Nobel Prizes because they uh, were awarded like the same week. And on October 8th, uh, there was the uh, last uh, Nobel Prize in uh, Economic Science, which was uh, awarded. So that was basically like a casual uh, chat we were having on uh, Nobel Prizes, which is like something that we discuss uh, every year. Having the two conversation back to back just uh, clicked. And mm -hmm. I was thinking like, well, Nobel Prizes are here to reward people who made like uh, amazing contrib contributions to uh, humankind. So why is there not an update on the disciplines of the uh, Nobel Prizes and adding climate change to the list? So when we, with Raoul, we uh, dig a little further into the topic, we found that actually in his will, Alfred Nobel uh, said that the prizes should reward uh, people who have uh, bring the greatest uh, contribution to humankind. And obviously, like when he listed the, the topics, the, so the, the five original topics are physics, chemistry, medicine and physiology, literature and peace. He didn't mention uh, obviously climate change because that was not an issue in the ninth <laughs> century, but it seems like obvious to us that the world in which we live in is like very, very different from the one Alfred Nobel uh, experienced. And so that would make sense to try to get a new category of a uh, Nobel Prize. You mentioned originally there was five original categories. Is that right? And they've added a sixth? Yes, correct. So uh, they added a prize in economic science. This prize in economic science, uh, which is uh, known as the Nobel Prize in economic science, is actually the prize of of the Central Bank of Sweden uh, in economic science in memory of Alfred Nobel. And it was created in uh, 1968. The uh, Central Bank of Sweden uh, gave a big donation, undisclosed uh, donation to the Nobel Foundation, asking them to administer the prize and to refer uh, to it as along with the other Nobel Prize. So nowadays, if you I go see. on their website, uh, the uh, the website of the Nobel Foundation, you'll see that they mention those uh, six prizes, including the prize in economic science. It's only when you click 
on this prize that you see the full name of the prize. The way it's uh, administered is through the Nobel Foundation. Uh, the process is exactly the same as the other Nobel. Interestingly, that after they accepted to administer this prize, the board of the Nobel Foundation made the decision not to accept another prize. And they made the decision uh, say, the same, I think it was uh, 1969, so uh, 40 years ago. So that's really a question of the uh, board to reverse their decision. There is like nothing in the will of Afro Nobel that will prevent them to, to do that. Ah, I see. So 50 years ago, when the economic prize in 1968 was accepted into that collection of prizes and, and awards to give out, the next year after that, they then said no additional prizes. So we're staying at six indefinitely. That was the then decision of the board. Yes, correct. Understood. So I was going to ask, you know, it's been 50 years, so either it's really past due for new awards or there's a lot of entrenched reasons why they haven't added any, because I'm sure there have been petitions in the past. That's really interesting, the, the history of that. I'm actually just on this side at the moment. And what's interesting, and as you say, the, the economic award this year was quite interesting because it was a split prize with one of the prizes going to William Nordhaus for work on including climate change into long-term economic planning. So there's already some acknowledgement of climate change happening with the Nobel Prize. So do you take that as encouraging that they are willing to talk about climate change in relation to the Nobel Prize process? Yeah, I think we think, obviously, that's a good thing. And from time to time, you know, maybe every few years, you know, one of the prizes has gone and will go to something related to climate change. You know, Al Gore, Barack Obama, this year's economics prize are examples. We don't think it's enough. We think climate change needs to be in the global awareness at the highest level every year. This is needed every year, and that's why we're pushing the, the board to make that a new prize. You know, they've done it once in 116 years. They can do it one more time. Uh, if there's really one thing that humanity needs now is global awareness, so there's global action on climate change. And yeah, we believe that Nobel Prize is, yeah, Nobel Prize is uh, so widely accepted, respected, that if there was one prize for climate change, it would have a huge impact. The, you know, the one thing we noticed as well where, was when the IPCC report was released in October, it lasted half a day. And then the news cycle was over, and then something else was in the news. But no, despite like all the dire predictions of that global report, people stopped talking about it. The Nobel Prize, on the other hand, they released their prizes every day for a week. And so every year in October, they have a full week of the world's attention, which to us was like the proof that, yes, this is probably the, a great way to increase the awareness of climate change and and also uh, congratulate and talk about the people who are taking action against climate change, because that's the most important thing. We want people to realize that great things are being done. We need to double down on them. It's not like the world is not acting, mm -hmm. but it's not acting currently enough or at the highest level. That's a great way to leverage a whole bunch of media awareness and place in the media cycle. Rather than sort of creating another day of awareness, you know, like we've already got Earth Day, we've already got Oceans Day and Litter Days and everything. I think it's a very sensible way to go about it. I wonder, just a, a quick question about the Nobel itself. You know, like uh, a lot of people know that, you know, the, it's a bit of pop culture history, how Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite, 
created the Nobel Prize, you know, kind of, as you say, in his will to kind of make up for some of the damage that happened because of his invention, you know, living through, I think, was was it the First World War that he lived through seeing this destructive potential and, and the ramifications of his work? Do you think maybe if you did get a Nobel Prize, you could get a massive endowment from the... Uh, the fossil fuel companies which is probably (laughs) it's tainted fruit so it's not a good idea but um Um, so to uh, complement the uh, anecdote about the reason uh, why our Alfred Nobel decided to create those prizes the story goes that so he was one of the wealthiest men uh, living at uh, this period and his younger brother uh, died before him and a French newspaper thought that it was Alfred Nobel who died. Ah. And so basically they wrote uh, his obituary and were like very, very uh, harsh, uh, calling him like the merchant of death. And so reading that, he realized that he didn't want to be remembered for that. Obviously, who wants to be remembered for that? And so he decided to create uh, those prizes to change his legacy. And also because I think that he, as a scientist, uh, and that's, you know, my take uh, on it, he was also a true believer in the uh, ability of us uh, humans to really like improve. And so for me, those prizes are really not only about uh, the greatest uh, achievements, but also it's a message of hope of uh, someone who believe in the goodness of human being and the fact that they will, um, that our society will just become better and better. Uh, so yeah, so that's for the full anecdote. Um, yeah, that's great. And uh, you're right, like that, there is a possibility, uh, and that, I mean, let's say that uh, best case scenario, the Nobel Foundation is willing to create this new prize. They might, uh, say, well, the precedent with the economic science uh, prize is that we got a big endowment to create it and to be able to, to form the prize, like the money that goes with each Nobel Prize is uh, roughly uh, $1.1 million. And so they might say, well, um, how do you uh, provide us with this money? So obviously, like if you make the calculation, the, the donation should be between like uh, 50 and uh, $100 million uh, one-time uh, donation. Mm-hmm. And we, the way that we envision that, that uh, we would set up a fund that would be opened to any kind of uh, donation, including like micro donation, because we mm-hmm. really want it to be for everyone and supported by everyone. If everything else goes really well, you'll have to worry about that down the track. This idea and this, is it a, do you call it a campaign? This is a project. Is this your, uh, your life's work now? As I am like uh, transitioning my uh, company, I will have like uh, more time to work on uh, on the petition and uh, we have started to organize uh, here in uh, in Seattle so we are uh, currently an initiative under Cascadia Climate Action I met uh, the 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 founder of Cascadia Climate Action at a, a citizen cli- uh, citizen climate uh, lobby I don't know if you're familiar with this organization uh, yes, sure. luckily I am through through podcasts, and they've just actually opened up here in Melbourne as well. Okay, so I met uh, Ma- Mary uh, there. So when I uh, launched the initiative, I connected back with her and asked her for advice. And uh, one a good advice that uh, she uh, gave me is that obviously we need to be like more than uh, 
to uh, to people and uh, one way to get support would be uh, maybe to get some uh, interns through uh, the uh, various universities that we have here in Seattle and big initiative under Cascadia Climate Action uh, allow us to uh, basically have a student work on their capstone. And so we're really excited to have a student of UW that will be uh, joining us and helping us to um, organize the campaign in a more systematic way. Because like for the time being, we have, uh, so that was like uh, Raul and I who tried to uh, uh, kickstart the campaign. So we now have like almost 25,000 supporters, but we're hoping that with me having more time, uh, with the help uh, of the student, we'll be able to do something like more systematic and to organize in a more, yeah, systematic way. Excellent. Congratulations. That's a huge step. And that's... Yeah. Is it really validating as well? Yeah, one of the other things that we've done, you know, in one of the first steps that we've done is uh, translating the petition, which was originally in English. And so, you know, the more languages we have, the more reach uh, we can get uh, once we really get started with, you know, having more local uh, local support. And so through, you know, friends and friends of friends, we have uh, now, like, I think almost a dozen languages uh, for the petition. So that's actually like a very good point uh, that uh, you raise a role. Like one thing we really want also to do with the petition is that we want the petition to be global because climate change is a global issue. All of us, we need to act if we want to be able to stay below 1.5 degrees Celsius. And so because of that, it didn't make sense to us to have only a petition that would target like the US, Canada, and uh, obviously the the European uh, country and uh, Sweden. So we really, I mean, it's really something that we want to do. We want to uh, get it uh, global and also to Hello, people whose uh, voice might not be here uh, at the table of uh, international negotiation to be able to raise their voice and be able to wait on on this issue. So, yeah, we're very pleased. We have like Chinese, Russian, Arabic, Hebrew, a few um, European languages like Finnish, Czech, uh, Greek, Spanish. Uh, We have Cambodian, the latest uh, (laughs) language we have. and yeah, we're really trying to get more translations so this petition can really be uh, a reflection of the way we have to act together and to cooperate together if we want uh, to solve climate change. Fantastic. So how can we help out in other countries and other places in the world? There are a couple of uh, ways. Obviously, if you know people who can uh, translate the, the petition like any other language, obviously we're missing, for instance, uh, for, for example, like Hindi, but we do not have like a lot of, we do not have any languages uh, from Africa or, or even like uh, indigenous people. uh, If they do not uh, speak uh, English or Spanish, they won't have access to the, the petition. And that would be very detrimental because like, especially, I mean, from what I see in the US, like uh, people from the first tribes are really the one at the forefront of the fight against climate change. So obviously, if we can also like bring the petition to them, and if they can also be part of it, that's, that would be great. So that's one way to help. The other is obviously to try to uh, get the word out. <laughs> that mm-hmm. the hardest part, how do we uh, get this uh, petition uh, viral? So uh it can be shared inside by as many people as possible uh, if they f- feel like that's a good idea. 
I'm just like, I'm really blown away by the ambition of this. And like, do you kind of pinch yourself sometimes? Like, oh my God, we're act- we're trying to add the first Nobel Prize in 50 years. The Nobel Prize must be up there with some of the most well-known human institutions we've got in the whole world. Like, the Nobel is, is so universal. Like, is it sometimes just a bit, do you have to step back and think, wow, I'm trying to do something really big here. And is that is that daunting or is that encouraging? Um, I would say that uh, we don't uh, try to think too much uh, about enough. it. Um, <laughs> it's uh, just otherwise you do nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And, and we really have to act and we really have to try to leverage every institution, every thing we have uh, to be able to uh, really not only like raise awareness, but also like switch uh, people mind from knowing about climate change to acting about climate change. Mm-hmm. And really, we have no time. So, you know, we do not uh, think about it. Uh, we <laughs> just, uh, just work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, just to add, I mean, to be fair, we had a few, oh my God, moments, you know, at <laughs> first, uh, to be fair. Um, but, you know, I'm with Ellen, right? We, that's, we are like so far from the goal. You know, we really want to get to a million signatures, which is incredibly high and tough to achieve. You know, we are like 2.5% of the goal today. <laughs> so there's just lots more work to to get there. Um, yeah. That's great. Like, you know, you are, you know, what, 25 you're one one fortieth of the way there already to a million <laughs> signatures. That's incredible. That's a good way um, to get it. There you go. <laughs> I, I gotta say, like I before I started this this podcast, before I started making something, doing something about climate change in any kind of real way, I whenever I thought about the problem, it was so big and overwhelming and paralyzing and terrifying. I it was I would kind of have to shut down a bit and and not think about it anymore. From that experience, when you you found yourself overwhelmed, Helen, you talked about sort of breaking down a little bit, thinking about it. Has that been better since you started working on this project, actually having something you were doing about it rather than like, has that helped at all with that feeling of the immensity and the like immediacy of the problem? Oh, um, uh, absolutely. Like 100 uh, persons. I think that you are absolutely right. Like you can be overwhelmed by the uh, task which is in uh, front of us. And that's actually from this really deep uh, angst for the future that the urge to act was, uh, was born. And, and I have to say that when you take the first step, even if it's like a super small step, you're on the right uh, track and it's become easier and easier to act. And you get this urge of acting more because action like really empowers you and you see that you can make a difference. So, so the, the harder thing is really to overcome this initial fear or this position that can be like, okay, what will it make a difference if I go uh, a plant-based diet while my uh, neighbor is not doing that? So why should I do that? It will not make any difference. And then you can really like uh, go to a place of uh, despair. But if you're not the one who take the first step of like trying, I I take this example of uh, switching to a plant-based diet, 
based diet, how will you be able to convince your neighbor or your mom to do uh, the same? You have to lead by, um, by example. So I would say the hardest part is really the first uh, step in the journey. And after that, you just get this uh, energy. And, and anyway, I think if we don't want to act, we have to ask ourselves what's next. And once mm-hmm. next, it's a lot of uh, suffering for millions of people, including your own children who are born. A daughter is four, our son uh, has, will just turn one tomorrow. And I won't be able to look them in the eyes. I think the situation is very different from what it was uh, 10 years ago when I was uh, at Copenhagen. At that uh, time, uh, the goal was, okay, uh, two degrees Celsius. And we were talking about, okay, that would be the uh, kids of our, our kids that would be suffering. Like, it's still like super close, but for some reason it was not close enough. And there was like a lot of uh, apathy. Whereas with this new report is basically, Hey, wake up. This is your kids. This is your niece and nephews. This is your students. Um, and I think that, um, our kids can really be a, a way to inspire us. And I am so amazed at what, what is going on in Australia with the, um, schools that are in strike for climate change. Mm. I'm uh, really impressed by this uh, Swedish uh, girl yeah, who is Greta. also in strike uh, yeah. uh, because of uh, climate change. I think that it doesn't make sense that it's our kids that have to be the adults in the room and that have to spur um, adults to act. So at that point, we just have to act. And like what we were thinking that hope without action is just wishful thinking. You, mm-hmm. We cannot sit there and just be like, oh, well, someone in a lab will figure out a way to make a fusion work or to make uh, the hydrogen a battery work and boom, we're all solved. Of course, like uh, raising the uh, funding of research, of the research is like absolutely key, but sitting and take a back seat doesn't make uh, any sense. You're just putting all your eggs in one basket. <laughs> and so... Uh, act is really key and that really will relieve your angst. And so one thing that I uh, was m- mentioning because, yeah, uh, launching this, no, this petition from an, a Nobel Prize, uh, is really energizing. But if we were like only doing that, I think that we will still feel a little bit like hypocrite because basically that will be putting the onus on, uh, the other. And, and so that's why we, we worked, uh, hard on making our family climate action roadmap, uh, better, like setting new objectives. And that's really, really powerful because now we have a roadmap which align with the, uh, goal of, um, cutting emission by half in 2030 and being like climate neutral in 2050. And then you dictate you have like sub goal for each area of your life, like housing, transports, transportation, uh, food, goods, service. And then you can set milestones. Like for instance, I, I'll uh, stick with the plant-based diet uh, example, but like for mm-hmm. this year, 2019, uh, the milestone we have uh, in our uh, family climate action roadmap is that we want to eat red meat only once a month, and white meat and fish once uh, a week. And, and that's so much easier to stay uh, focused when you have those milestones because previously what we used to do is that 
we were convinced that we had to switch to a more plant-based diet. But so I was the one like um, uh, doing the the cooking and doing the grocery, but I was not really like tracking what I was doing. So mm-hmm. I was not even sure that I was like uh, on track. And so yeah, so having those milestones at the family level really empower you because you're taking action. So, and I would say that another way that why it's really so important to act is that you cannot rely on politicians to be ahead of their time or ahead of the voters. If the politicians do not have the backing of the voters, they will never, never, ever enact the policies or the law that are needed to switch to a 100% renewable. Because if they do not have the voters backing them, they would be just like uh, too afraid to uh, to be voted uh, out. And so once you are changing your own behavior to align with what the society or the economy should also aim for, that's really so much easier for you to make the right choice when you act at your community uh, level or as a voter. That's amazing. That is like... I'm ashamed to admit that that was the first time I've heard of a climate action roadmap for a family, but I'm also now really excited to hear about that. And I I really want to do that myself. So I'm keen to keep checking in with you and I want to know what's happening with the petition and basically all this stuff I'm doing in the show. It's really a, a platform for other people. Like I didn't start it to, so I could be on it. It's really about getting groups and, and projects like this to sort of get the word out there. Uh, and so you don't have to like, do what Nori did and start your own podcast. It's kind of like, if you ever want to come on ours, you're very welcome. This is such a big hop. Thanks so much. I mean, this is incredible. Yes, no you're, you're doing something <laughs> amazing. Like really uh, getting the word out is uh, so needed. So thank you. Thank you, Tom, Mark. It's oh, awesome what pleasure, you're doing. Pleasure. Like just like we, do, we don't have our own Nobel, we don't have a lot of our own media that's good as well. And so we just get <laughs> the important stuff gets crowded out with, with inane, meaningless stuff, which is a shame because nothing is near as interesting as this as well. Like your guy's story, it's kind of like the um, like the the modern day Robinson Crusoe kind of the the was the family Swiss Family Robinson kind of. You take a hostile environment, which is what our the world we live in right now is is a hostile environment to our future, and how do you kind of carve out something that makes more sense? Mm-hmm. Keep up the good work, guys. This is really, really ex- exciting what you guys are doing. It's amazing. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. <laughs> Thank you so much for your support. Thanks, Thanks. for having us. That's really Not a problem. <laughs> no worries at all. I hope Helen and Raul's story inspired you as much as it inspired me. Since talking to them, their give-it-a-go attitude has pushed me to get the wheels in motion on a project of my own. Definitely a humbler goal than a new Nobel Prize, but something I'm looking forward to sharing with you all the same. If you like the sound of a new Nobel for Climate Change Action, just check out the show notes for links to get involved and to sign their petition. Thanks for coming on, Helen and Raul. You were great. Thanks to the Climactic team for saddling up again for this year. Editor Rich Bowden, producer Hazel Fidicaro, composer Greg Grassi, designer Abigail Hawkins, correspondents Maxine Baisley and Georgia Scheel, and senior advisor... Gretchen Miller. We'll be back next week. The Climactic Collective. 
This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio. studio.